why is the Sermon on the Mount so important? As a husband, father, and pastor, how do you apply the Sermon on the Mount to your life? If the Sermon on the Mount was a hashtag, what would it be? Chris sits down with special guest Mark Clark as they discuss these questions and more on this episode of Your Church Friends. All right, welcome to Your Church Friends podcast. I am Chris, and today I have the privilege and honor to be joined with Pastor Mark Clark from Village Church. He is Hello, the, sir. Uh, you are the senior pastor there, correct? Yes. So, yeah, uh, senior pastor. I, I mean, I used to be the only pastor, so I, I, I guess we we call me the senior one now. But yes, started the church in uh, in 2010, so coming up on 11 years now, which is crazy. And and you're up in Canada, so we're doing this via Zoom, just so everyone who's listening uh, knows that this is a Zoom call. And, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so grew up in a uh, in a non-Christian home and uh, became first walked into church when I was about 19 or so and only stayed for the pretty girls and and then I started you know really met Jesus and some crazy stuff happened in my life and uh, ended up feeling called to go into ministry and so I started pursuing that and uh and then God kind of started calling me to to maybe be a professor you know not necessarily chase ministry as much as scholarship so I was like well okay that's kind of confusing so my wife and I we got married uh, I grew up in Toronto and we uh, moved out to Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, which is the West. The, for your listeners, most of whom have probably never been here and think I'm wrestling whales right now for my food. Uh, we're on the West Coast of uh, Canada. And uh, we moved out here so I could do uh, school and get a master's degree for a couple of years and then and then go on and do some, some, some work, some school overseas. And then God called me to plant a church. So I was like, oh, okay. So, uh, you know, I got a passion to try to reach, you know, our culture for Jesus and teach the Bible. And so we started a church with about 16 people in my house and just said, you know, let's, let's uh, try to reach some people. And uh, so that was 11 years ago. And since then, the church has, you know, grown and we've got lots of staff and we have eight or nine sites now across Canada and uh, continue to try to plant some churches. So that's awesome. So we're, we're, uh, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the final episode for this season of Sermon on the Mount. Next thing, we're going to get into some other stuff. I think we're going to just do like some interviews with people on topics, and then after that, we're going to follow up with the uh, villains of the Bible. But this is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, and I thought since you've kind of preached through the Sermon on the Mount, you guys, I think when you started your church, right, you went through the book of Matthew, like you just preached through Matthew. Yeah, yeah, verse by verse through Matthew it took us three and a half years. So that was, uh, that was a few years ago now. Um, and uh, people were like, well, how's this going to work? You know, and uh, it was crazy. It was amazing. Yeah, I love it. When actually when I listen, go back and listen to some of your, uh, your messages, I just love the verse by verse stuff. It's, it's kind of even for my own style of preaching of what I, I've grown to love. Uh, I, I burnt myself out on trying to come up with topics, themes, yes. formulas of keeping messages together. Right. And then I'm not creative enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I really was like writer's block. I was sitting there, what is the Bible trying to tell me? Right. Um, instead of just letting it speak for itself and let it do that. So I really enjoy it. So yeah, you, you guys went through Matthew and I just thought it would be cool if you kind of give some of your thoughts and inputs through some of the questions I have sure. on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, be great. Right. So let's go with uh, question number one is, why is the Sermon on the Mount so important? Yeah, it, it, I mean, historically, it's almost become kind of the, the Magna Carta of of specifically Christian behavior almost like, you know, we, we have belief belonging behavior that are, you know, Henry Nowen talks about that idea. And, 
And when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, you have this like, how do you, how do you, you know, first John says you, you, we, that we need to, you know, be like Jesus or walk like Jesus. So that's actually a part of life. The Christian life is not just about believing some stuff different than your neighbor about the incarnation of Christ or about politics or about whatever. It's there's theology, but then, you know, do you believe a whole bunch of different things in your neighbor, but then look like them in every other way in your life? Do you spend your money and time and do family and all of that the exact same? Well, that's not really the vision of, of the alternative kingdom that Jesus had in mind when he, when he sat down and he went, you know, here. And so the, the Sermon on the Mount is a great kind of three chapters of saying, here's how we look opposite. Here's how this alternative kingdom actually functions. Here's the, the kind of tension of the now and the not yet. We are kingdom people, but we're kingdom people in the present. And when we're in the present, we're going to live a life that is the opposite to what the culture and the world around us feels like we should do. So in order to accomplish things in your life, you need to go after power. Uh, Jesus has turned the other cheek. You know, th these are like antithetical to what we think would work, you know? Um, and so he, he lays out this like massive, you know, version of here's how I want you to look. Now, what's probably the case, and I don't know what you've kind of been talking about in, uh, in your podcast about the details of this, but it's, you know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount just straight, you know, it'll take you like eight minutes or something. So it probably wasn't like an eight minute sermon and then everybody moved on. I, uh, I just, you, you talked earlier about me talking about the, the book I just wrote. So I just wrote a book called The Problem of Jesus. It comes out February 23rd. And uh, I'd, I'd written a book a few years ago called The Problem of God for Zondervan. And it's all about kind of the existence of God and, and the kind of the big questions, hell, exclusivity, sex, you know, the kind of things that keep people away from Christianity in general. And the problem of Jesus is kind of deeper dive into the person and the work of Jesus himself, his teachings, you know, uh, his, his call to discipleship, which is, you know, part of this. And it's a big part of it is like, look, we can't just believe a bunch of stuff about Jesus. Jesus actually laid out a way of functioning. And part of my chapter on the Gospels is this idea that he didn't just say some of these sermons once and then everyone in eight minutes jotted it down and then printed the Sermon on the Mount and started handing them around, you know, Palestine in the first century. It's, uh, he, he, most scholars would say he probably traveled around with these sermons and he might have preached very similar sermons, you know, dozens of times, maybe hundreds. And then the gospel writers like Matthew have the, the freedom as gospel writers because they're not writing biographies the way that we do to organize their material. And so the way I picture, and who knows, I obviously wasn't there. The way I picture the Sermon on the Mount kind of playing out is it's a retreat. It's, it's you know, it's a weekend. It's, it's, uh, it's four or five days of what, it's, 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 hey, I'm going to download this information for you. It's interesting. If you read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that he took his disciples. And then at the end of it, it says, and then the crowds. It seems like some time has passed where something else is going on. And so I think there's Matthew has this freedom to collect this data and, and organize it in the way that he does. And of course, in the Gospel of Matthew, you have five major blocks of teaching. And Matthew is constantly positing Jesus as kind of this new Moses figure, right? Like he's always up on a mountain when he's doing something significant, whether that's like 
the Sermon on the Mount or because Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Sermon on the Plain. It's like some of the same content, but he's not on a mountain. And so that's why I'm saying he probably said, you know, and then skeptics go, well, see, he didn't really say that. These guys are making it up. It's like, no, no. Matthew's drawing from that time he did it one year and Luke's drawing from it from eight weeks later when he did it again. You know, it's kind of, it's not a reason not to believe the Bible. The discrepancies actually are reasons that a lot of scholars do believe it because it's like, oh yeah, he probably said this many times as, as, you know, teachers at that time did. And so you have like, you know, chapters five to seven, and then you have chapter 13 and, you know, the, the five major blocks that build up to him on the mountain at the end giving the great commission and then ascending, you know? So you have these five major blocks that are almost these five new Moses teachings and leading a new Exodus and all of that. And so this is the first of those. And it's really a laying out of, here's how I want you to think. Here's how I want you to live. And it's going to be the opposite of everything you feel you should do naturally. Yeah, that's, I like that part about the discrepancy, because I do think a lot of people get caught up with the discrepancies that that's why they don't want to believe the Bible, or that's why they turn away. So I think that's a really good point to bring up. Uh, a lot of people just, well, the Bible said this and said that it contradicts itself. So I, I don't want nothing to do with it. But I also like that you brought up because I don't think we did it, the the whole Moses concept, mm-hmm. that it was, you know, this kind of showing of Moses. And this is Moses, uh, or Jesus kind of being the new Moses and bringing the new laws and the new commands. Because Really, when we tore into this, it had been a while since I personally got a deep study in the Sermon on the Mount. And looking at it, it was just, my life is not this. My life is not that. I am, I am definitely not a peacemaker at times. I am definitely angry right. a lot. So I've got to learn to check these things. I've got to learn to deal with these things. And here Jesus is saying, here's the way too. If your prayer life isn't working, let's start here with the Lord's Prayer and start functioning yeah. that way. Right. When you do things, don't do things for attention like the, like the hypocrites do. Like Do things because you just want me. And, and the, the one I really loved was the treasures. Where are you putting your stuff at it? And, and worry. Because uh, we talked a little bit before the show. Like I'm just, I got a, a lot of anxiety. I'm an anxiety-driven ball, whether it's I want to control things or I'm worried about things. You know, For me, I, I'm a control freak, so I've learned that that's just another form of worry. Right. And yep. and and learning all that, it's just it does restructure our our life as Christians and and the counterculture. I think you've mentioned this before, just the counterculture that this isn't what the world is like. Like you were saying, like if you just believe things, but you go out and act like your neighbors, then then really what's changed? And mm-hmm. and the Sermon on the Mount, when I looked at it, it really did help change some of the character issues. Yeah, and I think that's you know part of the purpose is the laying out of this is this is the way I want my people. We're going to exist in the world for a time, whether that's thirty years or ninety years or whatever, how much you know, how much time you have. And I want them to look. I want them to look the opposite. And it's interesting because some people, like if you look at the New Age thinkers, Deepak Chopra and these kind of people, they they look at Jesus and they say, you know, uh, Jesus was all about love, and Jesus you know, was all in there. And I remember watching an interview with Deepak Chopra once on Larry King, and he was saying all the judgmental stuff that Christians bring, all this like hell and brimstone and all this kind of stuff, that's not Christianity. And then he just said, Christianity, if you really want to know what it is, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And then I thought to myself, when's the last time Deepak Chopra read the Sermon on the Mount? Because there's tons of hell and brimstone in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's constantly, t- that's where we get it. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's like, we don't even get hell and all of that in the in the supposedly wrathful Old Testament. We have to wait till the loving Jesus comes along to get a version of uh, God's judgment, which, which looks like that. And so, 
you definitely have the stakes are quite high in the Sermon on the Mount too. He, you know, as, as one scholar has said, if we're going to look at Jesus and say, with Jesus, the, the um, love of God ratcheted up, then we also have to say the wrath of God ratcheted up because there's versions of it that aren't even there in the Old Testament that come out in the Sermon on the Mount about hellfire and so on. And so we, we got to kind of wrestle with the scandal, the confrontation that Jesus is in, in these chapters too. That made me think of when he talked about adultery, right? Like lust, what Jesus was saying is it goes beyond when the like physical encounters happen. Uh, adultery yeah. it, it starts at the heart it starts in the inside at the beginning yeah he it's almost like he he uh you know people love to kind of you know say old testament bad hard difficult new testament love grace whatever it's like he he makes it harder he says uh hey you remember when when you did you know you couldn't murder someone he's like yeah that's great yeah no i i if you don't like people you've already murdered them it's like well what you're kind of making it hard here like obviously i don't like people so uh, he makes it harder. He raises the bar in a sense. He doesn't drop it. It's easy not to kill a guy. You know, it's harder not to say I hate you or you're an idiot or whatever, which, which, and, I, and I'm going to make a point here that, that has always struck me about the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't know if it's heresy or not. So, you know, you can delete it later. But <laughs> else, I also, I also, when I look at the Sermon on the Mount, to be honest, I think this is very important in the, in the context of hermeneutics, you know, the art and science of interpretation, that we never isolate things unto themselves, we always have to read the Bible in context. And so as we were saying about the Moses thing, like what, what builds to, to, to read the Sermon on the Mount as a Moses thing? Well, if you go back to chapter one and two and three, you've got, you know, um, even the, the, the narrative of Jesus' birth and his, his being a kid and the Magi and, and going to Egypt and then citing an Old Testament text from Hosea that out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son. And he comes out of Egypt, which is not in the Luke story. There's no Egypt. There's no sighting of kind of an Exodus story. And then you have Jesus, you know, baptism, and he comes up through the water of the Red Sea, or or, the, or his baptism as Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea. And then he goes out into the wilderness. As Israel went out into the wilderness, they went out there for 40 years. He goes out there for 40 days. And then only in Matthew do you have the fight the battle with Satan and the battle with Satan, interestingly enough, all three times he quotes Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy, of course, is the story of Israel in the wilderness failing to do the very vocation that they're called to do. And all three times he fights Satan in the wilderness with Deuteronomy text. It's calling us to look at it this way. Jesus is leading this new Exodus, not out of the slavery of Egypt, but of the slavery of sin and death. And then he stands up and he goes, okay, now I'm going to give you the new way to live. And, and all that's all that's fine. All that's pretty solid. But now here's the point that might be heretical. When you then read the full 28 chapters, here's what here's what thought struck me one time. Because you know, we read this Sermon on the Mount and we're like, we this we can't do this. Right? To be honest, like every time uh, I drive past the lingerie store, I gotta pluck my eyeballs out and crash my car. And so I, I, we can't, we literally cannot really ever do and accomplish what he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, which is why I think, I think actually that's part of the role of it. So if you go back and you read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what you have is these laws that are laid out that are, that are great laws for life. But then by the end, God at the end of Deuteronomy says, by the way, you know, all that stuff I asked you to do, you're never really going to be able to accomplish it. 
And so a prophet's going to come and, you know, basically a new age will dawn and yada, yada, yada. And it's almost like the Sermon on the Mount plays the same role. It's like, I'm going to lay out this kind of life. But when you read it in the context of the whole book, you realize we're going to shoot at this alternative kingdom, but we're going to fail, which is why he has to go to the cross and rise from the dead and then give us a vocation of mission because we will fail. And so if it was just Jesus walking down a mountain going, here's the new Ten Commandments, you know, don't lust, pluck your eyeballs out, cut your hands off, you know, and that was it, then it would be a new religion. But when it's set in the context of the cross, which is going to pay the very cost that we couldn't do, Jesus is going to be the one who walks the second mile, you know, with a cross on his back. Jesus is going to be the one who, who, who prays from the cross and says, hey, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He's the one who's doing all the stuff you know, that he laid out in the Sermon on the Mount for us. And uh, I think that's the great hope of it. So if you're, why I say this is because if we read it and we find guilt and shame, that's not the point of it. It's all the context of the cross, which is going to accomplish the very thing that we fail to do at times. Yeah, that Moses part really blew my mind right now. The whole from the beginning, I never put the two together of Deuteronomy, the first few chapters of, of Matthew leading up to that. Never right. had, like, my, I'm sitting here and I just went, boof. <laughs> you didn't hear anything after that, but it was. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I tried to tune out the heresy because I just wanted to make sure I stayed in check. Yeah, but, yeah that's, good. that's good. No, yeah. everything after that was great too. It just, it is, it, it eliminates the shame. It eliminates all that because in the, in the process of it, it is all about the cross. And that's what our main goal and the focus of it all is. That, that's some good stuff. It, it leads me to my next question then that I've got for you. Which of these practices do you see missing the most in the church and what impact does that have? I think forgiving, uh, forgiving people is a pretty big one. I think probably lust, being able to follow the lust thing in, in our context is pretty tough because we're just inundated with these things all the time. Hating, you know, hating people in our heart. I think th- these are, these are uh, and, and worry. I see that a lot, worry and anxiety, as you talked about. Peacemaker, you know, the, these things are, you know, uh, you know, uh, I heard someone mention the idea once that why you've got to base your life and faith on the biblical text versus your cultural moment and whatever your cultural moment may like or not like. We have to be careful not to drop kick the Bible out of our life because of something that the cultural moment may be telling us to like or not like. And the example they used was if you if you went to uh, New York City and you pulled the Bible out and you read it, the people there would look and say, or Vancouver, Canada, secularized country, you know, post-Christian city, they would look and they would say, there's things I love about Jesus. Okay, uh, I love I love Jesus stuff about forgiving your enemy. It's good stuff. I love Jesus stuff about loving your neighbor and you know praying for those who persecute you. Such good stuff. And then you get to the part about sexuality or marriage, and you know you only get to sleep with with one person, your husband or your wife, in the context of marriage for the rest of your life. You shouldn't lust. You should, and they go, ooh, boy, his the sexual ethic seems uh, seems a little conservative. But I'm loving this social stuff. It's great. Then you get on a plane and you fly to Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia and you go into a park and you open up your New Testament and you start talking to someone. What they're going to do is they're going to say, 
man, uh, this, this sexual stuff seems a little liberal. Jesus seems a little, uh, a little loosey-goosey on the, uh, the, the old sex stuff. But this stuff about forgiving your enemy, I'm out. I don't like this guy because don't you know that my family got killed three generations ago and I'm going to get those people back for doing that. And so in that moment, whatever culture you're in, that cultural moment is going to find the things about Jesus teaching that you deny, the things about Jesus teaching that you accept. And we've got to let the Sermon on the Mount critique both worlds in a sense, the conservative religious world and the liberal secular world, and let it kind of blow them both up. Because the job of a prophet, as one writer, Brian Walsh has said, and I think this is true about the people in the church right now, he says, the posture of a prophet, which is what Jesus was, is always prophetic critique and prophetic hope. And oftentimes what happens is we only have people who offer prophetic critique and offer no hope, or they only offer hope with no critique of of the systems and the way humanity actually functions. I think Jesus was coming to do both things, and the Sermon on the Mount is such a great example of him offering critique and hope to the way humankind functions. From what I'm getting gathering here, just missing the balance of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the yeah. love with also the critiquing, the love your, love your neighbor, but then adding in pray for your enemy, that change of like, oh, wait, I've got to forgive somebody. Yeah, I like yeah, that. It, it's, let, it's, letting, it's letting the Sermon on the Mount do its work on you and not not kind of picking and choosing when it's legitimate you know it's it's saying yeah it's going to call you to be a peacemaker and you should love that not just because you live in some secularized culture that loves the concept of being peaceful but because he's critiquing you to do that but at the same time he's telling you not to hate people and to walk the second mile and to not lust and so you know, you're not allowed to kind of pick and choose the teachings of Jesus that you listen to and let work on your heart and those that you don't. It's the whole thing. And I don't know, for me, I guess, because we live in our society in our day and age, it feels like it's a very cherry picking culture that we people cherry yes. pick the Bible and they'll, sure. I like this, I don't like that. I, I saw somewhere it said, uh, the Bible is the one thing that, that you can't agree to disagree with. Right. Because once you do that, then everything starts, you know, you start, I like this, I like that, I don't like this, and I don't like that. And then you're no longer living what Jesus was telling us on the Sermon on the Mount, to be a different culture, to be a different person. Yeah. You're, you're just choosing what's more convenient. And I think, I guess for us who, you're in Canada, I'm in California, America, the, the comfort and convenience of Christ coasting through re- religion and, and, and that relationship is easier than letting it do what it needs to do, chew and chew up our life and, and mm-hmm. spit out something better than, than what we were looking for. Yeah. Uh, all right. So next question then. Unbelievers, new Christians, and seasoned Christians, they all read the Sermon on the Mount. What's the message for each of them? All right. But before we answer that question, hey, church friends, go out and buy Mark's new book, The Problem of Jesus, Answering a Skeptic's Challenges to the Scandal of Jesus. I can't wait to get a copy myself. It's available everywhere on February 23rd, 2021. And while you're at it... Hey, guys. Hey, hey, Reed. I'm trying to plug Mark's new book here. So sorry to interrupt. Oh, okay, whatever. I'll just let you do your thing. But have you considered giving the Your Church Friends podcast a five-star rating? When you do this, it makes it easier for others to find the podcast. They are searching for something new to listen to. 
appreciate your stars and support. Alright, where was I? Yes, that's right. While you're at it, grab a copy of Mark's previous book, The Problem of God, Answering a Skeptic's Challenges to Christianity. Personally, it was one of my favorite reads of 2019. Like what you're hearing? Oh, great. Now Remy's interrupting. Have any questions for us or prayer requests? Got an idea for a future show? Hop on your device and send us an email at yourchurchfriends at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Anyways... Now back to... Now back to the show. Reed, you stole my line. Unbelievers, new Christians, and seasoned Christians, they all read the Sermon on the Mount. What's the message for each of them? Similar. You know, he starts off by redefining blessedness, you know, from a world... I mean, you're talking about a culture that struggled to... I talk about this in, in the problem of Jesus too, a culture that was looking for a prosperity gospel, you know, a culture that was looking for like, who is blessed really? Can someone, you know, what, you know, the Sermon on the Mount comes out of chapter four, right? And of course, in the, in the, um, in the, the original text, there's no chapter breaks. It's just text. There's not even, there's not even periods in Greek. It's just, I took Greek for three years. So I, you know, I, I have to use it once in a while. There's none of this. And so you're just reading the story. And the, the Sermon on the Mount begins on the tail end of, you know, the, the temptation story and so on of chapter four. And what you have in that, in that story is Jesus is fighting the, he's kind of laying out this new way and he's going to say, I'm going to fight the temptation of, of Satan to uh, do. And, and one of the temptations is we'll turn this, turn these stones into bread. Well, that would have been a very easy way in first century Jewish culture of an oppressed people who were hungry to get a lot of popularity. And they're looking for this, who's blessed and who's not blessed. And he comes out and he says, here's, here's what blessedness is, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so blessed is the one who, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, which is, I think, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about that as kind of the center the center beatitude of the whole thing is the sense of if we're going after, you don't have to go after happiness because of course the, the, the McIroy word, the blessed word is the, the other word for it is happy. Happy are the ones who, and happiness is not a result of chasing happiness. Happiness is a result of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You go after righteousness and happiness is the result. And he's redefining all of that. He's saying, this is true blessedness. And remember, again, Moses started with or ended his, his ministry with blessing and cursing, right? Here, here's another, by the way, here's a, if you want to, you know, remember this one for your mind-blowing stuff later. Remember um, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, you know, before he leaves the people and because he, he never goes to the promised land, which is interesting. Uh, when you're reading through Matthew, by the way, and Moses and Elijah show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, that's the first time Moses ever puts his foot down on the promised land because he, of course, he dies before he goes in. He represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets and all of that. Moses' whole ministry ends with him going blessing and cursing, right? Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30. Here's blessing, here's the cursing. What's Jesus doing? The first part of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes blessed, 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 blessed. 
the last block of teaching in the gospel of Matthew or the second to last is Matthew 23, where he ends with cursing, cursing, cursing. Woe is the one, woe are the Pharisees. Woe are the Pharisees. Woe are the Pharisees. Here's Jesus doing the new Moses thing again. He starts with the blessing. He ends with the cursing. And so I think we all need to kind of sit back and go, Jesus is redefining happiness and blessedness. So to all three of those people, there, there is a heartbeat of what is true happiness. That's the, the biggest motivating factor in all of our lives is what makes me happy. That's what motivates me to marry who I marry, dress how I dress, eat what I eat. It's happiness, joy, happiness. Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount begins with the word blessed, happy. So he's got our attention. All three of those people have to listen because he's going to redefine how to get it how to get happiness, how to get joy, how to get fulfillment in life. And he's going to say, it's not what you think it is. It's all upside down. So I think all three of those people could, could take that message. It's really interesting what I'm, what I'm discovering with you listening and talking about it, even as we've gone through it for weeks now. Uh, we started our journey and our conversation in June, and here we are in January of 2021. But what I'm discovering is the parallels that culturally a lot of the things are the same. That people, the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of prosperity. And when you said that, I'm like, man, that, that's no different than today. Like, that's exactly where people are. They want uh, prosperity. They want all this. Even within the church, we want, and like I mentioned earlier, the comfort life of everything can coast through and I can, I can live comfortably. I mean, it, it's a great thing to want, but really that, that deep seeking of happiness does come from seeking righteousness because the more I seek God, the more happy I'm found because of the more I'm in him and the more yeah. I know him. So I really like that. I'm really liking the parallels though, the, between the Moses and, and Jesus thing, that, that stuff really that I've, that's never, ever crossed my mind, but that's super cool. Here's the, I got the next question for us. Yeah. As a husband, father, and pastor, how do you apply the Sermon on the Mount to your life? Well, obviously it, in almost every aspect of it. I mean, you have the, the prayer life, you have the greed, be careful. You don't go after materialism, make sure you're not lusting. You know, there's all these things about my character that are in there that I want to make sure that I'm, I'm right. I'm doing the things Jesus wants me to do in the way that he wants me to do them. Cause you know, competency can get you in the room as my friend, Kerry Newhoff says, but character keeps you there. And I think that being able to, follow the ways of Jesus in the ways that he lays out here, that's what's going to keep me in the room. That's why anybody's ever going to want to listen to what I have to say. First and foremost, you know, my audience of one, Jesus, and then my family and my kids and my church and people online or whatever. And, you know, as you mentioned, when, when character falls apart, you know, people stop listening. And so, you know, all three of those roles are kind of intertwined in the sense of I want to raise girls who you know, love Jesus, not from a behavior modification standpoint, but really love him from their heart and recognize that he has the best for them and, his, you know, their best in mind. And so you have all these anxiety and worry. That's a big part of all of our lives, especially right now where people don't know what's going on. Everyone's locked down and scared and freaking out on politics and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, and I think that's a great, I remember my non-Christian buddy was, um, he always used to make fun of the fact that I was a Christian. And then one day he had to go in for to get his wisdom teeth pulled out and he was totally freaking out. And uh, he said, come on, give me something from the Bible, bro. Give me something from the Bible. And immediately I just thought, yeah, Sermon on the Mount, the worry thing, you know, the, the blades of grass, the birds of the air, 
you know, don't worry, you can't add another day to your life. And I sent him this long passage and he's like, yup, boom, that's what I needed. Jesus is legit, you know? And it's like, all right. So the world needs, you know, this message um, in many ways. So as I do. I have two kids of my own. And I think really the one thing that I've noticed for myself is the, like I mentioned, the anxiety part. Mm -hmm. And now seeing that played out in my kids' lives. Right. So we just we just came back from a trip. We went to Tennessee, me and my wife and a few friends. Went to go see a beautiful, beautiful state. And uh, we're driving around there. And this has been like the first time my daughter has been away from us for that long of a period of time. It was like four days. And the first night she's FaceTiming me crying. I miss you, daddy. I miss you. And I could just see as I'm trying to like drive around for hours, I could just see myself in her, that anxiety, right. that worry that's, that's still there. And as a father, I thought, how can I help my child not struggle through the same things I did a majority of my life? Mm -hmm. So I just told her, hey, whenever you're worried, call, message, whatever, text, like, or FaceTime me whenever you want, and I'll talk to you. She blew my phone up for, for four days because, you know, she missed daddy and mommy and, and yep. uh, all that. But as a father- That's a bad move, bro. You just got to leave the house, get in the airplane and <laughs> shut that thing off. <laughs> Yeah, it's our first time, so I'm not an right. expert on traveling away from them. Even when uh, when I go places by myself and my wife's with them, I'm you know I I've been a, a around my kids their entirety of their life, and especially with my daughter, just I cling to them so much. So yeah, she she was just calling nonstop, but it was fun. You know, I'm talking to her while we're on the highway. I'm, I'm doing that, but I, I also wanted to teach her tools that yeah. like this anxiety is it's okay. And I, and I told her fear can be in the car with you. I've heard this before. Fear can be in the car with you. It just can't drive. Right. And so I, I told her that. And by day three, when, when eventually she, like, I think everything started calming down. I didn't hear from her once. It was just like, Hey daddy, this isn't working. How do you make it work? And I, Oh, right, okay. Right, do right. this, this, and this. Yeah, that's uh, good. So, so living, I think for me to answer the, the question myself is living mm -hmm. it out. And also right. I think the, the being upfront about where I'm at in my own life, not hiding anything or trying to be the perfect dad or the perfect figure, right? Uh, the perfect husband, but being honest with it, with it all. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, ultimately Jesus is going to give us that righteousness when we, and that's what I'm saying. He's the only one who actually lives this thing out and then gives it to us when we trust to him. And so it's not, you know, in a sense, you know, the Sermon on the Mount can crush people because they think it's a new religion. They think it's, but, the, but it's really important to understand the differences, as Tim Keller talks about, the difference between the means of trajectory or the means of salvation and the trajectory of where salvation goes. You know, um, you don't, you're not saved by doing the things in the Sermon on the Mount. You're saved by the finished work of Jesus. But then the trajectory of your life needs to be a life that is reflected in the Sermon on the Mount, the trajectory of where your salvation goes, but it would be a mistake to think that you get to go to heaven because you didn't lust, you know, uh, you get to go to heaven because you, you loved your enemies. It's like, no, you, you trust your soul to the one who loved his enemies ultimately, and then you become like him, but you don't get saved by just trying to be like him because that's crushing. That's kind of what I always loved about, I grew up a Christian my entire life. So it's almost like two parallels of people here, right? One who grew up atheist and, or in an atheist household. And then me, uh, I grew up, my dad's a pastor. My brother's a pastor. I understand also that side of the coin of the crushingness of trying to live up to those expectations. 
and yeah. trying to do that because that that's kind of almost my thought of who God was when I grew up was if I didn't do what was right, I would get punished. And right. and it be- almost became a point of, well, I did what's wrong. Here comes the punishment. And it, it was almost an embracement of the punishment at that point because I just knew it was right. coming. So if I right. did something wrong and then got a speeding ticket, I was like, well, that's the punishment for that. Right. But that is so crippling. And, and really, the reality is that, yes, that my relationship with God, once I start really building on it and seeking after him and wanting more of him, where he becomes my everything, that the fact that heaven isn't the ultimate reward, salvation, a relationship with him is, and I seek after that, then, you know, that kind of concept of who God is kind of starts to fall fall away. And, and I understand this, this is really about a relationship. It's not about following the rules to get me into heaven. It's about building a relationship with him. Yeah, it's good. All right. This is the last question that I have for you. If you don't like it, it's my wife's fault. She's the one who gave it to me. So okay. totally throwing her under the bus. Yeah. Yeah. All good. Uh, if you can make the Sermon on the Mount a hashtag, what would it be? Oh, man. Wow. Wow. Off the guy. You need to give me two weeks notice. You know. <laughs> uh, something about, you know, um, something about like what is the what is true happiness or uh or you know alternative kingdom Ah, i like that one yeah i like that one alternative kingdom hashtag alternative kingdom yeah if if you want you could just say thanks justine for that question thanks justine (laughs) great yeah so that's all the questions i have if you wanted to share anything else then then totally fine with that but this has been cool honestly sitting here talking to you uh, at some points, because uh, I listen to your messages on my uh, when I run and exercise sometimes. So I, at some right. point, I kind of got caught up thinking like, oh, no, I'm just listening to Mark like I normally yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, it's always funny when you listen to someone's voice for a while and then you you actually see them talking and you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. Yeah, well, then- the, the first time I, I heard you talk at the Thrive Conference in, in uh, 2019, they had like the people I went with, they're like, oh, you can't wait to hear Mark Clark, Chris Brown. They had mentioned a few people that were there. Like these people are, you know, this is take note time. Right. And uh, so they, they hyped you up and then you went on the stage and you started talking. And I was like, this guy sounds like, I don't know if you've watched Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, so this is me confessing that I have some bad tendencies on what I watch. Right. Cultural research. That's what I tell my church. Cultural research. I love it. Yeah. And I said, uh, this dude just sounds like Charlie Day. Like. That I, that's all I heard, and that's all I visualized for the longest time, and I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> yeah, I've got a few. I've got a few. Uh, I got uh, people say I sound like a few people. It's like uh, what was what like uh, Super Dave Osborne, uh, uh, Alex Jones, one person. Because I was, it was funny. I was making fun of a guy that I know, and I was saying you sound like Alex Jones, and I was, and then I would like, I would interpret like we're gonna go get the globalist Joe, you know, and then my buddy's like. <laughs> No, dude, you sound like Alex Jones. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I don't know. There's a few. There's a few running around. Vince Vaughn. Some people tell me the, the way that I do my little. Who knows? Anyways, that's so, awesome. Yeah, it's so, annoying. Whatever it is, I, I can't listen to my own voice. It's cackly. Oh, uh, trust yeah. me. I edit my R show, and I, I really do It'll make me dis- sound like Anthony Hopkins in the end. Yeah, good. Yeah, I could try. I haven't been able to figure out to do it with myself yet. So. <laughs> Uh, but this well, has been awesome. Me, no yeah, problem, thank Mark. You so thank yeah, you so thank much. You. I'm just gonna sign us out here, and uh, and then we'll we'll I'll let you get on with your day and doing what you're doing. Awesome. So, thank you. I'm Chris.
sitting here with Mark. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Cool. That's it. Awesome. Dude, I appreciate you doing that. Is your spirit poor because of your damaged hair? Are you mourning because of your split ends? Are you being persecuted because of your dry locks? Then rejoice and be glad and get ready to inherit the earth because comfort has come for your meek mane. The Bee Attitudes Beauty Product line proudly introduces the Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner. Your frizzies will thirst and hunger no longer as the patent secret pure of heart formula inside will bring your roots and ends to peace. So show mercy to your curls and buy the Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner at all big box retailers. Don't trust us? Then hear this amazing testimonial. My hair feels great. Awesome testimonial. The kingdom of Hairvin can be yours with the Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner. Peacemaker isn't actually sold in stores or FDA approved. Do not use Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner if you are pregnant, nursing, have back pain, have a heart condition, enjoy having all your fingers or alive. Peacemaker has been known to cause hair loss, change of color to existing hair, skin irritation, dandruff, fingernail loss, growth of an extra toe, weight gain, and cat scratch fever.